This is Climate Justice, y'all, a podcast dedicated to lifting up and centering the climate and environmental justice movement in the South. Despite the South being the most biodiverse, diverse, and one of the largest economic engines in the world, we are underfunded and often barred from the decision-making table. Because of that, we decided to pull up a chair and amplify the stories of communities in the South hit the hardest by the climate crisis. We're using good old-fashioned storytelling to shine a spotlight on these Southern leaders from all walks of life, putting in their blood, sweat, and tears to transform the region. The usage of y'all in the title is on purpose. We are honoring our Southern heritage of creativity, resilience, and ingenuity. All right, y'all, it is season two of Climate Justice Y'all. Let's get started. Hi, Justin J. Pearson. Um, Just to get started with the show, let's go ahead and um, have you introduce yourself and your organization and what you guys do. I'm happy to. And thanks, Abigail. Thanks, Marisha, for uh, allowing me the opportunity to be here. I am Justin J. Pearson, and I serve as president of Memphis Community Against Pollution uh, as its founder and the co-founder of Memphis Community Against the Pipeline. That's so cool. And listeners, that doesn't even begin to showcase everything that Justin J. Pearson does because I mean, good grief, talk about a rising star and being a youth activist. Like I saw your interview on the John Oliver show and I was like, wait, oh my God, we get to talk to this dude? Like, (laughs) perfect. All right, well, you know, so today's episode is usually like primarily about youth activism and the power that young people have to push for transformative change. Mm -hmm. Um, So we would love to hear more about your experience about fighting against that pipeline that was going through Memphis. And so like, what is it and why were you advocating against it? Yeah, so uh, Valero Energy Corporation and Plains All-American, two multi-billion dollar oil conglomerates sought to build a pipeline about 49 miles long from Memphis to Mississippi in order that the oil could be exported down at the Gulf of Mexico uh, near Cancer Alley. This pipeline project cut right through the heart of Boxtown, a community built by formerly enslaved African-Americans in Westwood, a community that's 95% African-American. Our neighborhood where I'm actually from, a fourth generation South Memphian, uh, was the place that they called the quote, path of least resistance and we resisted Uh, this pipeline project was only intended for oil to be exported none of it would have benefited Tennesseans none of it would have benefited the people in Memphis but they'd used a lot of tactics and ploys in order to disrupt the community to uh, ensure that they would be able to move this project forward they paid people off very little for their land They threatened folks in court using the power of eminent domain, which we went to court about, uh, and were near a summary judgment uh, saying they didn't have that power before they quit the project. They were threatening our drinking water. In Memphis and in this region, we get water from an aquifer, which is rainwater, which was rainwater 2,000 years ago, uh, some of the purest water in the country and the world. And they were threatening that. Uh, These pipeline companies didn't care at all about the black, the brown people who lived in these neighborhoods or the poor folks that they were going to exploit and hurt um, uh, by building this project. And so in uh, the fall of 2020, October, uh, we listened to a project my family, um, my future co-founders and community leaders and neighborhood associations heard the pipeline project articulate, why is this so great? Why is this so good? Uh, But then we wanted to resist after hearing that presentation, hearing how condescending they were and that they were so adamant about doing this regardless of what the community wanted. And that's where I really started to get more involved and engaged uh, in this fight. So this isn't my first time hearing that companies, um, they kind of threaten you and the community to 
I don't know, you know, just try to hold back and not fight for your community. What is the path for least resistance? And how do you how do you get the community members to even try to continue to fight for their freedom, their rights? You know, that's true. Go ahead. Yeah, that's it. That's the question. <laughs> that's such a perfect question. And it's true. Uh, communities are often exploited by corporations who don't care about the community at all. Uh, they care about their profit margin, right? And how much money they can make. And you hear the tagline often, corporations choosing profit over people. That's quite literally how they sustain their business practices. And it's a model that has always disproportionately harmed poor people, black and white and uh, other communities of color uh, disproportionately. And something uh, that's really important here, when they called our neighborhood and communities the path of least resistance, they were looking at the way the community had been treated previously. They were looking at the disinvestment from the government. They were looking at the fact that no economic opportunity or business development was being intentionally catered to this community. Politically, they knew that the leaders didn't always have the best interest of the individuals in mind. And so when it came to this corporation who was from Texas saying that it was the path of least resistance, resistance, they were looking at a long history of injustice that had plagued this community. And so they didn't realize and didn't understand that that community that they thought was the path of least resistance because people in positions of power who are empowered to actually care for the people uh, were ignoring them. Uh, they missed that those people who live there, though, are quite resilient. And for centuries, uh, black folks in particular in our neighborhood and community have resisted. Uh, and enslaved folks built this community of Boxtown. And it is called that, and it got that name because they use wood from boxcars to build their homes, to repair their homes. It is that type of determination, that type of resilience, that type of perseverance that continues to push forward this movement even until this day. And so for a lot of communities that are tired, that have been beaten back, that have uh, been resisting injustice for a really long time, it is difficult to say, let me gear up for just one more fight, right? Let me keep going for just one more fight. Uh, but we must, uh, because that's what we are called to do in this moment. And it's really important that we don't try and do that work alone. It was older folks and younger folks, or rich folks, poor folks, uh, who really galvanized around the protection of Boxtown and the historicity there, as well as our drinking water that helped us to be successful. And that was subversive to the status quo. That is what corporations didn't anticipate happening. They thought it would just be poor black folks fighting, poor white folks fighting. But when wealthier people and people from different parts of the town and different parts of the state and different parts of the country, even globally started to care about what was happening, it changed the course of history for us. Mm. You can't see us, but Marisha and I are clapping, snapping. All types of praises is just going on. Yeah, we're kind of going to church over here. (laughs) Well, I mean, you bring up... Yeah, well, you bring up a really good point about the importance of having, like, not only an intergenerational, like, movement, but getting, making your cause sympathetic for people who aren't in your community to begin with, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So I would love to ask more about, like, what, did y'all have strategies or were y'all just going from the heart when it comes to engaging with people or, you know, because, I mean, you were only 26 when you, like, Mm -hmm. led this movement, so... 
kind of, what was going on through your mind when it yeah. came to you leading this movement and what strategies did you use? Unless we can't talk about the strategies because the oil companies are listening. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, I mean, oil companies are always going to be listening. In fact, they, they, during the height of the fight, they were paying people to listen to everything that I was doing. Um, oh, God. And so that's, that's okay. <laughs> it makes uh, and one was a strategy session with activists. So, hey, uh, what can you do? That's the um, thing. Like, these things happening make you feel like you're crazy. Like, like how yeah. do you remain resilient? Like, how did you keep fighting knowing that it's people gunning you down? It's people here trying to stop you from pushing this fight to keep the community going? Like, how did you keep going? Yeah. Uh, so these are connected, right? Uh, the point of resilience that we had is our community. Uh, I am oftentimes at the pictures and things, but this movement was really led by elders in Boxtown, Westwood, West Junction, uh, neighborhood associations. Uh, it was their resolve, their stick to uh, that allowed the fight to even be a fight by the time I moved from Boston uh, back home to Memphis. You know, this pipeline and project had been going on for over a year and a half. Uh, they had been holding community sessions and meetings. And as one elder said, you know, we held them off long enough for the Calvary to come. Uh, I, I consider myself one of the folks in the Calvary uh, and I'm happy to play uh, uh, to play a small role in helping to move things forward. But it really is uh, being people centered. It's a people powered movement. Uh, if it was just me by myself or just me and my parents or just me, my brothers and my parents um, uh, fighting this and leading this, uh, we would just be a group of people angry. Uh, it really is a community that was educated and informed and wanted to be activated uh, and did not want to be run over again, did not want to be mistreated again. Uh, that uh, became the energy and the source and the power of our movement. Uh, for me as an individual, I, uh, it's important that folks realize there's an emotional toll to doing anything worthwhile. Uh, there's an emotional toll uh, that can uh, produce positive benefits and some emotional tolls that produce negative benefits, right? I think the pipeline companies put a lot of emotional uh, toll into what they were doing, which was evil. Um, and that was the energy that they had. But our emotional toll was liberating. It was for love's sake and for the love of our community and the love of our people and the love of our resources and the love of our water. Um, and that uh, is more sustainable and at times also renewable. Um, and uh, when it comes to how do we get more people, right, like engaged, the threats um, seemed on the surface to be directed just at black folks and poor folks, right? That's what it looked like. And this is a story of environmental injustice and climate injustice in our country. It looks like it's this marginalized group, these Native American people, right? These communities of color that are just going to be harmed, these poor white folks. And at the surface is where the pipeline companies really love to fight because there they can exploit. They can tell white folks, you don't care about the black folks in South Memphis. They can tell rich folks, you don't care about the poor folks in Kingston, right? Like you, they can do that. But when we, with, 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 with hearts deeply concentrated on, on each other and community and love and also victory, right? Because we wanted to win. Um, it created a different uh, atmosphere, I think, in which to organize. Um, and so uh, when I think about, you know, how, how do you 
build this coalition, we also found something that was universal, which was threatened, our water. In a lot of fights, what's universal? Our air. Yes, it would have been the water of the communities of South Memphis hurt disproportionately, but that would have had ripple effects to everybody, right? And when you think about all of these petrochemical plants and these oil refineries and these coal mines in West Virginia or the petrochemical plants down in Cancer Alley, Louisiana, yes, it is the people who directly live there who are hurting disproportionately, but all of us are dealing with the negative effects of climate change. Everybody is having less good quality air. Everybody is having more risk to their water. Everybody is having more risk to the health, healthiness of the soil, which produces food that we need in order to survive, right? Like that's the reality. Um, and the more that we can connect that truth, right? Which is what is happening to this group is not somehow separated from who I am. It is not separate from uh, my li living and my life uh, existence or sustenance. Uh, then we're able to build what uh, the author Heather McGee, the writer of the Some of Us calls the solidarity dividend. And that is the, uh, that is the very, very important uh, framework, I would argue, uh, that we are trying to live into, which is to get people from different parts of our society who are told that they are so different, who are told that they need to be separated uh, together and realizing our likeness and our shared existence. And if we fight together, we'll win together. And that's what corporations don't want us to know. That's what capitalistic, exploitative people and practices and corporations don't want to tell, which is if we fight together against the differences that they say we have, we'll win together. Amen, amen. So I I truly believe the kids are the f future, both literally and figuratively. As a kid mm -hmm. yourself, you yeah. know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. I also believe exactly. that community members are one of the most important puzzle pieces in moving your community into a just transition. So with mm. that being said, what's an, what's, um, what does environmental injustice look like, particularly in your community? And what are tangible steps for the people in that community to do to fight towards um, environmental injustice? Yeah, and we ask that because some people may not realize they are in an environmental justice community mm -hmm. and they may not know what to do to fight it too. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So uh, I want to double click on the point. Kids are the future. Everybody's a kid is somebody. Um, and the truth is, uh, if we don't, even in our movement, one of the priorities for me this year has been uh, to work with a lot of high school students and students under the age of 18, people under the age of 18, to get them more engaged in the fight against pollution. And um, things are happening organically that really make me emotional, but a group of third graders uh, held a rally to protect water and to stop pollution at one of our schools uh, earlier this year. And I didn't even know it was happening. Someone told me about it. But that is that is proof, the proof point that what we are doing and what we are saying matters. And it is uh, true, the truth, the saying that uh, we are borrowing uh, this planet from those who are to come. It is not ours to keep. We are we are we are borrowers. Um, for future generations, and we have a responsibility to have a mindset uh, I, I, of long-termism, is what it's called, where we are looking well into the future, 
one of the beliefs of our Native American brothers and sisters that I've heard articulated is about seven generations. And I've heard it two ways that are really important uh, in my mind. One way to think about seven generations is that think about the three generations behind and all that they endured and thank them for their sacrifices that then got you here, right, into the present and then look into the future, right? And so look back realize you are a generation and then look into a few generations into the future. And another way it's articulated is you are a generation, we are a generation and seven generations from now, what will they inherit from us, right? What, what will we have given to them? And another great question is what kind of ancestors will we be for them? Um, and so kids are definitely the future um, and it is not the responsibility of children to fix the evils of adults. Uh, and that's the work that we have to be presently engaged in and resisting as people with uh, privileges, as people with power, as people with voices, um, to use that uh, to echo what children are asking for, uh, which we know in our bones that children just want to be happy. And it's hard to be happy when your lungs are being choked by toxic facilities. It's, it's hard to be happy when the soil that you play in, like in East Chicago, Indiana, is poisonous. It's really hard to be happy when the water that you drink scars your skin, can scar your skin and can give you a disease such as in Flint. And so we've got a responsibility to create a present uh, that resembles the type of reality we know all children deserve, not just rich children um, who happen to live in the right places or have the right skin color. And uh, the reality is, uh, depending on where you live, uh, it dictates a lot about the life that you're going to have. Um, as I heard one person say, your uh, zip code has a whole lot more to do uh, with your well-being than your genetic code. And that's, that, that's, that's, that's frightening and quite terrible for people who are poor and people who are excluded and folks who are marginalized in our society. Because in American context, uh, the United States federal government actually created policies decades ago about who could live where through the practice of redlining. And by redlining, they determined where black people would be, were and where they would be able to live and where wealthier people and white people would be able to live uh, and never the two shall meet. And I'll tell you what ultimately happens in my mind, uh, industry and polluters and land use control boards and local governments all looked at those maps where they were red where they were red identifying black people. And that's where they built these facilities and these industries. And I'll give you a case in point in uh, Southwest Memphis, we have 17 toxic release inventory facilities. If you're living near a, an oil refinery or a steel mill, um, if you're living near these factories that are uh, creating pollution, you're living in an environmental justice community. If you're dealing with hundreds of trucks, 18 wheelers every day up and down your streets. That is impacting the lung quality of the kids and of the individuals in the community who will grow up and they're gonna need more medical care than on average, they're gonna have a different life expectancy than on average. And it's so severe right in the neighborhood where I live that by living here, uh, our average lifespan is expected to be 68 years old. And if I lived in Germantown up the road, uh, I would get 10 more years of life because their life expectancy is 78 years. 10 more years of memories, 10 more years of experiences, 10 more years 
to do and fulfill whatever dream someone has. And so it's really important that people realize uh, the uh, majority of folks, particularly if you are black, indigenous, person of color, uh, especially if you are poor um, uh, and, and, and lack wealth, that you are very likely living in a community uh, uh, where there are landfills, uh, you're very likely living into, in a community that is ripe for exploitation by corporations. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> 10 years? 10 wow. years. God. <laughs> Just, that's all a decade. That's a decade. A decade of a difference. And it's just mm-hmm. you going up the road. So what can people do once they realize they're in an environmental mm-hmm. justice community? Yeah. Everywhere there are organizations fighting. And the reality is uh, join movements and organizations that are in the movement. Uh, If you're in an environmental justice community, it's really important uh, when you smell things to report it. And you can do that uh, at the state level through the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation in our state. Um, But through the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, kind of has these hotlines that you can call. Uh, You can join organizations like Memphis Community Against Pollution, right? Like we're out there. And there are some larger ones uh, that exist as well that I think are doing great work, such as uh, the Sierra Club. Uh, who have been on the front lines here in Tennessee, uh, but also across the country and pushing some more forward uh, and progressive policies. Uh, But it's it's important that you join some folks who have some institutional knowledge and who are doing some work, or if you don't have those folks, it's time to start making calls to local organizations such as the NAACP to see if they have some work on this. And if no one, then now is the opportunity to start. Uh, And very likely it can be you, right? Uh, There's an opportunity in a lot of places to create and really just get people in your community together to start having a conversation about this, which can be kind of scary. Um, But if you're like me and you've firsthand experienced the effects of relatives dying from cancer uh, because of toxic air and things like that, uh, folks are willing to talk. And then you bring in leaders, your city council person, your state representative, and you you call them in and say, what what can you do about this? And what will you do about this and hold them accountable? It isn't going to happen immediately. But the reality is we cannot afford to not tackle this issue uh, because it is literally killing people. And the ramifications of pollution are going to exist and become more pervasive uh, as it relates to climate injustice and climate change uh, if we don't do and if we don't act and if we don't fight now. Wow. Uh, You just so seamlessly, you know, Marisha and I have been throwing so many questions at you. (laughs) And the fact that you just seamlessly (laughs) just boom, 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 answer. It's great questions. Yeah. Just you're you're amazing and you're inspiring and very kind. Thank you. Um, I'm really, really proud to be a Southerner and be in the same region as you. You know what I mean? Yes. But like, speaking of that, it seems like your activism is based in the South, specifically in Memphis and in Tennessee. Why do you keep fighting in the South despite all the challenges, whether it be the government, corporations stuffing their things, fossil fuel companies listening in on your meetings? Why do you keep fighting in the South? I mean, you go where the fight is. I think if you want to fight climate injustice, environmental injustice, you would do it in the South. If you want to fight for labor rights and labor justice, you do it in the South. If it does not happen in the South, then it is unlikely to be able to happen elsewhere. 
the South is where the fight is. And all of us have a opportunity and an obligation and responsibility to be in the fight wherever it is. And for us, that fight is here in the South. And for us, that fight requires us to be proximate uh, to those who are suffering the most. And who are the folks suffering the most from environmental injustice? People who live in the South. Who are the folks suffering the most from the dep- from depressed wages? People in the South. Who are the folks suffering the most from undemocratic policies, principles, and practices that are depriving them of voting rights? People in the South. It is, uh, uh, it is here that we have to do the work. And it's important to realize that whether you're in California or New York or Massachusetts, right, their policies uh, also aren't nearly as progressive as they ought to be. Uh, there's this um, situation we're in that Naomi Klein writes a lot about, and this changes everything, that folks want change to happen as long as it doesn't cost them anything, right? As long as, long as it doesn't cost the, con- them consumerism, as long as it doesn't cost them uh, an election uh, or the status quo. The reality is we need to be in the places that are most on fire, right, and put those fires out. Uh, 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 you can't have folks who you, you're on the street and somebody's house is on fire uh, and you're running in, you know, with the entire fire department. And then the neighbor comes out and says, well, I have a house, too. Uh, it's like, well, but your house isn't on fire. Um, <laughs> the, the, the house that is on fire right now is the South. Uh, and it's on fire because we have racism and we have bigotry. We have patriarchy. Uh, we have uh, archaic systems in the Confederate, former Confederate states. Uh, that are intent on supporting corporations and profiting over people's lives uh, uh, that we have to resist with everything we've got. And this place uh, has a storied history of being the place of the civil rights struggle. It is the place uh, where the American economy was built by uh, uh, enslaved people who were trafficked. Uh, into this country who were molested and and terrorized and brutalized, right? Like you have to go to these very hard places to do the important hard work of creating justice. And it isn't necessarily to change people's minds or, or people say change people's hearts. No, it's to fight for what is right. And we are right. Uh, We are right to care about what people uh, uh, breathe. We're right to care about the soil. We're right to care about the water. We're right to care about people who are excluded and marginalized. And they are wrong. They have been wrong ever since they wrote into the Constitution that black folks were three-fifths of people. They've been wrong since they uh, uh, committed genocide against Native Americans. And we're wrong now for not recognizing these interlocking injustices and oppressions that are hurting people and not doing a goddamn thing about it. So to be right requires us to be proximate to the people who are suffering the most and getting in the ring and being in the fight, not running to places that seem safer, because really those are just people who might be more complacent, right? And as, as Dr. King once said, who prefer prefer peace, right, to justice. And, and I'll take no peace if that's gonna get us closer to justice. And that fight is necessary to happen in the South with everybody. Mr. Justin J. Pearson, Mr. Justin J. Pearson. Oh my goodness. Are you a preacher? What are you like? (laughs) Every now and then. (laughs) We have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you this episode. 
But before you go, before we go, we just want to ask you one question, one simple question maybe. What gives you hope? What keeps you going? What keeps you fighting in the South? What gives you hope? Yeah. Uh, y'all do. Thank you. Y'all do. <laughs> We are not alone. And that's really, really, really important to realize. Uh, when in fights, when seeing all the things that are happening, uh, it can feel really lonesome. But the truth of the matter is, we are not alone. There are millions and millions of people who are with us, who are on the right side of this, who want to see uh, justice happen as it relates to the environment and climate, who want to see a just, just transition, who want to live a better life, leave a better life for their children and their nephews and their siblings and their nibblings and their relatives. Uh, and so when I look at, you know, I've got uh, four nephews and two nieces. Um, uh, my, my hope uh, is uh, really in the dream, right, that they'll breathe freely. Uh, and I know that I've got something to do with that. I know that uh, their ability to breathe freely is not going to happen just because time keeps ticking forward. It's gonna be because a lot of us choose to move or bend the arc or plow uh, uh, the field of justice, right? A lot of us are gonna be doing some work to make that reality possible. And we beat two multi-billion dollar corporations, right? We can win. We changed legislation at the state house with, that has a supermajority Republican uh, House and Senate. And we still were able to get three amendments to a law that was written by pipeline companies. We have power. And so my hope is in the people power movement that I am fortunate to witness and be a part of and that uh, 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 we win and we can win. As, as long as we continue to work and fight together. And that's what I think the blessing of this movement is and uh, what I'm excited to see continue to happen. I am in awe of you, Justin J. Pearson. <laughs> thank you for Thanks. this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you all so much. I appreciate the opportunity uh, to be on here and to talk with y'all and your listeners. Um, and go to memphiscap.org, join us, uh, follow us on social media at memphiscap underscore org, and me at Justin J. Pearson. Uh, I would love to stay in touch. I would love for people to be in this fight. Uh, it's, it's a lifetime commitment, but, but we're here and we ain't going nowhere.